Everything we do must be actively participating in the kingdom. That's how we have to think of it. Everything Jesus came and shared with us and did with us here on earth for the three and a half years that we have recorded is completely consumed with this idea. Every bit of it. That's actually why in Luke, the very first thing, like so if you look at all four Gospels simultaneously and said, they're all telling the same story, right? There's four Gospels. There are four different accounts that are all trying to tell us the same story of the person of Jesus, his role, what he did, what he came to do. And the earliest writing that we have Jesus saying anything is in Luke. And in Luke, what Jesus is like 12 years old, give or take. And in Luke, he says to his parents after they are trying to look for him. Don't you know, I would be about my father's business. This is the first key to understanding everything you're about to hear from Jesus is completely concerned and consumed with the business of what God has him to do. Everything. And so thus, you call yourself a Christian. The word Christian arrives in Acts chapter 9, I believe it is. And that word means to be Christ-like. So the first thing you should do to be like Christ is to be consumed with doing the work that God has you to do here. So everything we read about Jesus, that's the perception that we must have. So we looked at the Gospels. We understood what they are, okay? They are four different accounts of the same story. So, of course, they're going to have slightly different perspectives. But as a whole, they all have the same understandings. You have three of them that are called synoptic, which is like a synopsis. There's like a summary. Three are summarizing it. And then one is what's called an abstract, which means he's not really trying to be super detailed about his account. He's trying to get you to understand spiritual things. And that guy would be John. So you have Matthew, Mark, and Luke. They're all summarizing it, trying to be uh, very, very detailed with everything. And John, who is like, hey, I'm being detailed, but my details are all over here spiritual, but it's still the same story. Does that make sense? So as we look at these, we are paralleling all four simultaneously. That is something that is an interesting feat to do if you've ever tried to do it. And you'll, you'll you, you, well, you have tried to do it because we're on session six. So you're attempting with me. This is all our first time together. Uh, so as we're doing this, we're seeing that this guy kind of points out this thing and this guy kind of points out this thing. And when we look at who they were writing to and why they were writing, we kind of start to understand it as to why they did the things that they did. Now, Jesus spoke a lot in parables. And every Sunday during this series, we are covering parables that he said. So and on Wednesdays, we're doing deep dives into events and conversations that he had. So let's, let's decide the difference or understand the difference here, okay? The difference is looking at events and conversations he had is he's saying, like, he may be saying things about spirituality, but he's like, it's like me and you talking right now, and, and he's not, like, giving us this story to help us understand something. He's directly telling you the answers, okay, to these things, whatever it may be, or he's helping someone understand how dumb they are or something of this nature, or you see something he goes and does. Yes, if you're not aware, Jesus quite pointed out um, how thick-headed so many people were, mostly his disciples. Uh, so, and you're supposed to be one of them, so welcome to the club. Uh, so that's, that's mostly what he's doing. And then when we look at parables, these parables parables, these parables lay inside of these conversations, okay? So even think of it right now, we're having a conversation, and over the course of the next 30 minutes as I have this conversation with you, you took a snippet of it, and it was a story I told you maybe about something that happened at my house or something like that, and that story helped you understand the context of what I was saying. Does that make sense? So that's what we're looking at on Sundays. We're kind of pulling out a story. So in your mind, when you're reading this story, understand that we're going to understand what this, what this story means because it's not a true story, okay? Jesus made these things up. They're fictional stories that he told that were to help us understand what happens spiritually, okay? So he was like, let me tell you a good story. Now, is the likelihood that his stories probably happened sometime throughout history? Sure. Like if we've looked at some of the ones that we've already looked at, it's like I could totally see that happening because like, I did it in my own life, right? That's how brilliant Jesus is when he's sharing these stories. They relate to us and they help us understand what he's trying to get at here. So when we pull out these stories, we're going to understand what they mean. But as we come back on Wednesdays and we read the conversations, you're going to notice we hit right into that story. And you're like, oh, okay. That's why they're so important that they go together. So I highly, highly recommend that if you continue in this journey with us to watch every session you have missed because, or go look at the notes and stuff like that. There's like 20 pages of notes for today alone. Uh, so they're, they're all in there. They're uploaded. Taryn didn't 
spell check me. So, you know, they could be, you know, if you need help understanding redneck, Mike will be good, but, you know, <laughs> the rest of you may need some help, you know. Um, but read through those, not because I, I want you to, to, to watch and listen to me or anything like that, but because if you see the parallels, it's just getting heavier and heavier where it's like, oh, we talked about that. Oh, and this is like that. And you see just this one big, beautiful concept coming out. Now, last week, as you guys know, we talked about our, our candles idea, and we used, I mean, one of the most popular parables that Jesus ever told, which is the list, this little light of mine. That's what I call it. Um, but it's, it's taking a candle, hiding it under a bushel, or hiding it under something, and no, you need to let it shine. And we looked at all of, all of that. And then on Wednesday, we did a, a, a kind of a, what you say, a, a deeper dive into more of the text. Right now, we are setting at about 500 words. Uh, by the time this, uh, so there's like 2,000, uh, and by the end of today, we would be setting somewhere around 500. So we still have barely scratched the surface. Uh, so this is going to be fun. So, last thing before we start reading on this concept today is what is a parable? So I just told you it's a story. But in the story, it uses analogy and metaphor, okay? So something is like something, right? Doesn't mean it's the thing itself. But it's like it, right? So if I said, you know, that guitar is like my guitar. Well, of course, right? They're both guitars. They both have six strings. They're both made of wood. There's lots of similarities. But they're made of different woods. They come from different places. They don't sound exactly the same. You know, whatever. That is my strap, though. Um, so make sure John don't steal that. No, I'm just kidding. Uh, right? So it's like it. And so when we look at a story, Jesus tells a parable, and he says, it's like this. So many times we're like, this is what it is. It's like, no, it's, it's similar to it. It's like this. There's an understanding behind this, which means everything in the story means something. And what a lot of times we do, and I was even, uh, I was, after I had studied this out, I was listening to some other people, like, I wonder what other people break down in this, like this. And basically it's like, we don't really need to pay attention to any of this in the story. This is what he meant. And it's just this one line. It's like, no, there's, there's a whole lot of meaning behind this. Not hidden, right? We've talked about that. It's not hidden from you. It's not trying to hide it and keep it away. It's trying. That's why he told these giant stories is so you would get it, right? So we need to understand and unpack it as we look at some of these stories because these stories are everything in it. Every single thing in it represents something spiritual. So today we're going to look for sure at two of, there, there's actually four stories that all deal with the exact same thing in different ways. We're going to look at two of them today. And this is the idea of a wise and a foolish something. Because it's either a builder, it's either a servant, or it's virgins. Now, we're going to talk about this because I know that's like weird in our day and age, but it is not, I assure you. Um, so we're going to look at this, and this idea is the very next. If you look and if you're keeping notes, you're going to see we're kind of working our way through the Gospels, and this is the next big parable that comes up. But this parable happens from the beginning all the way... Son, this walks all the way. He's messing with a cup. Put it down. This walks all the way from the very first few chapters all the way down to the last chapters, this idea. Okay? So you, this is big. All right? This is big. Wise and foolish builders is the first one we're going to look at. Then there's another one that's a wise and foolish servants. And then there's another one that is the wise and foolish virgins. And we're going to look at the builders and the virgins today, okay? Now, the first thing we need to understand about who these people are, I'm going to go ahead and give you some of the answers. Like right now, before we even read it, get your mind spun up as to what's what in this story. This story is not dealing with unbelievers at all. This story is only dealing with believers. Meaning, the wise and the foolish are both people professed believers. Now, how do I know this? I will show you as we keep going, but you need to understand this. Meaning that a lot of times when we think of these, who's ever even heard just when I said the wise and foolish builders, who, who's like, ah, I kind of know, like the wise man builds his house upon the rock. The wise man builds his house upon the rock. The wise man builds his house upon the rock. I went to Humpty Dumpty in my mind and he fell off the wall. Sorry. I was like, what is the rest of that song? And the rain came to him. Yeah. Uh, so. All right, so all that was the church people who, had, who grew up doing that. So there's a song for all this. Maybe we should just redo the vault all based off of children's songs and be like, aren't we dumb? We were singing this our whole lives and didn't get it, okay? So, and we think like the wise one, that's, that's the believer because he professes Christ. And they were like, and the unwise, the foolish one is the sinner. Nope, that's also a believer. Mm-hmm. 
we know this more from the story of the virgins that we're going to get to later today. So all scripture is given for spiritual understanding and natural application. Good job. So now we know the wise and foolish people are both believers. So we are going to, as we read this, find ourselves on one side of the fence. So we're one of these two. And there's no middle ground, just so you guys know. You're not partial wise and partial foolish. You're just foolish or wise. So don't give yourself extra grace you would not give to someone else, because we're really good about that. We will pour grace all over. It covers me and sing every song about God's grace, but we will not give any of it to our fellow uh, man. So let's make sure we don't do that, because we just let's just be, can you be real with yourself and just say, that's where I fall. And if you are really falling on the wise side, fantastic. You may lean more towards the wide side, but there still is a very harsh dividing line between this. This is the point we need to get from this. Jesus didn't say there was wise builders and foolish ones, and then the ones that kind of built halfway in between, and half the house fell, and they had to do some fundamental, you know, you know foundational corrections, and they went and got jacks and hydraulics, and they fixed the house. It's not in the story. Okay, let's read it. So this occurs in Matthew chapter 7, verse 24 and 27, and Luke chapter 6, verse 47 and 49. It is in the notes. If you have the notes, just go go there. They're both located. We're going to read from Matthew. Luke's gives us the exact same understanding. It's literally almost the exact same verbiage, okay? Matthew chapter 7, verse 24 is is where we're going to, to read, okay? Verse 24, right here. For whosoever hears the sayings of mine and does them, he is likened unto a wise man which built his house upon the rock. Verse 25. And the rains descended, and the floods came, and the winds blew, and beat upon that house, and it fell not, for it was founded upon the rock. Verse 26. And everyone that hears my sayings and doesn't do them, he shall be likened unto a foolish man which built his house on the sand. And the rains descended, and the floods came, and the winds blew, and it beat that house, and it fell, and the fall was great. And then if you read after that, after people listened to this, they were astonished at his teaching because he was teaching them as if he had authority over things. (laughs) I would think that'd be pretty normal for Jesus to do. We'll discover why they were astonished later on. Now, let's just go ahead and back up just a little bit. Verse 19, for every tree that brings forth good fruit, um, is, is hewn, uh, uh, not good fruit, sorry, is hewn down and cast into the fire. Therefore, their fruits, you shall know them. By their fruits, you shall know them. Verse 21, not everyone that says unto me that day, Lord, Lord, shall enter the kingdom of heaven, but he that does the will of the Father. Verse 22, many will say unto me that day, Lord, Lord, have we not prophesied in your name? Have we not cast out devils in your name? Have we not done many wonderful works in your name? Verse 23, then I will profess to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you worker of iniquity. And then he says, whosoever hears my sayings and do them. So there is your context right there to know that the two people he's talking about are believers because he just told you that if you're good fruit and bad fruit, that's another example we're going to get to a little bit later um, in that because that's not really a parable. It's just an analogy he makes real quick for us. So he's saying, hey, both of these people that are believers are coming to me. They both believe. And then he says, hey, right here, we've got wise and foolish. Notice a couple of things about the wise and foolish people here. Builders, shall we say. They're both building something, Yes. And they're both building the same thing, a house, okay? So they're both building. Building means to erect or to to create, to construct, like something. And a house means a dwelling place, a place that you stay, like a place your life is founded, okay? So both, both believers are constructing their lives, and they're building their lives. This is the spiritual side, okay? It's not a physical house. This is a metaphorical house. I feel like, uh, what is it, Guardians of the Galaxy. It's metaphorical, okay? It's, it's, this is metaphorical, okay? So he's giving us this understanding to say there's these two guys, and they're both doing the same thing. At least it appears so. One of them builds it in a different way. We think a different location, But it's in a different way. If you look to the details of the word rock and the word sand, the word sands means shifting, changing. It means something that gets heaped up on the beach. Like it just washes away. It comes and goes with the tides. It's it's just all over the place. It's not 
consistent. The, a rock means something that is firm, consistent, unchanging. Are y'all getting a picture of like maybe God? Because he is eternal and always has been, always will be. But it's a different way because it also means upon the rock with a foundation and then upon the sand, no foundation. So one guy decides to skip a step. Could y'all imagine walking into your house like, I just paid to have this beautiful home built. And you walk in and you're just like on the floor. There's just no foundation whatsoever. In Texas, your whole house will fall through the cracks. Like they'll just get big enough and the whole house will be gone. So they built the same thing, but they did it in different ways, skipped a step, and because of how they built it, this shifts everything. Now let's do a quick couple breakdowns here. So who is the wise man? Someone that hears and does. Who's the foolish man? Hears, does not do. So that's another way we know that they are both hearing the word. They are both Setting in church on a Sunday. They are both listening to the words that God has to say, which would infer that they believe as well, because they're the same people mentioned before that says, have we not done all these things in your name? So how did they do it? Because they knew his name. So they're both believers. Mm -hmm. Okay. So whoever hears and does them, he's like a wise man, because that is the foundational element. That is building on the rock. That is the spiritual thing. And when the rains, floods, and winds blew upon them, it beat that house and it did not fall. This is actually super cool. I put it in your notes. The word rain, the word wind, and the word floods and blew, all of them. They're super interesting. Because, again, everybody, keep in mind, this story that we are hearing right now is not a story just so we can understand how to build a house better. This is not a literal storm that is coming, right? So what, what is even the analogy to this very day that we use when life is troubling? What do we call it? Storms of life. So can we just get a grip on that for a minute? That's what Jesus is referring to. When things come against, it says, the guy who was hearing and doing what I said to do, when these things happen, nothing happens. Nothing changes. But the foolish one who hears them but doesn't do them, when these things happen, everything falls apart, and it is a great big fall. Notice he doesn't just say, eh, it kind of fell, and we propped it back up, you know, duct tape, man, we can fix that. He says the fall was great, meaning the most, the, the, the biggest thing that could fail, it fell. Now, we need to understand real quick just about these ideas of rain, wind, and, and, and stuff. It's pretty interesting to me, okay? Every single one of these words. Now, now if you're taking notes and you're going to follow this whole thing, underline this right now. Every single one of these has a big core underline of violence. It is quite violent. So just like write that, like draw arrows to all three words, like violence, okay? These are violent things that are happening. Violent rains, violent floods, violent winds, okay? The word rain means heavy rain, like a heaviness. So this is a metaphor of a type of thing that will happen in your life, a storm that will come, which is a storm of heaviness. Anybody attest to that? Or has everyone been skipping on rainbows, unicorns, and bulletproof marshmallows? Heaviness, and it's this violent thing that begins to come down. And then it says floods, and I love this, because floods, we think because of the rain, it just gets deeper and deeper. And actually, the word flood means a stream or a current that pushes and carries away. So this heaviness comes, and then these, these floods come, this streaming, this current pushes away. And the winds blew, and this is cool because y'all know the word wind usually is the word pneuma, right? Spirit, breath, not here. It actually means a dense, heavy air, like an earthly air, like a dense, heavy thing. Like, so we would understand it in the natural, there's winds down here, and then there's like winds up in the stratosphere, right? Like, like those big, 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 big winds, but it's a heavy, thick thing. And when these winds blew, and the word blew here actually is the same word, meaning to breathe. Now, again, y'all are all thinking like, okay, because winds came and hit this house. It's a metaphorical house. The metaphorical house is your life. So what in your life would be the equivalent of a heavy kind of dense wind 
and kind of something that's blowing, like, it would be words like yours and other people's. Breath. That's what the word blue means. But the other word does not mean spirit, life, breath. It means an earthly something else breath, a heaviness that proceeds out of the mouth, you know, from the heart the mouth speaks. Write those things down if you're like, I don't, what is he referring to? Another thing Jesus is going to tell us later on. It's amazing. So this idea of this storm is a storm of heaviness and a storm of a current and a stream. And oh, uh, if you look actually at the details of the word flood stream here, the root of it means something to drink of. Didn't Jesus get through telling us a whole bunch of stories we just read about drink of his water and his life? Didn't we just read that? So this becomes something you partake of. And then when you do, the breath and wind is no longer spirit life breath. You are, you are totally partaking of this opposite thing over here. And it says it fell. And the word fell means to go from higher to lower. Okay, And it means to come under condemnation. And the word condemnation there means like a separation. So we think con- condemned and like shut up held, but condemned means to be separated from. And just to help you out with some other messages we've taught, this separation is also called death, because the word death in Scripture means a separation of the spirit from the body, or the separation of your spirit from the spirit of God. Okay. So he says this, then when these things came, and the guy who built his house quite differently on this solid firm thing, when those things happened, it did not phase the dwelling, the life, the house. But the guy who built it kind of differently, when those things happen, everything in the life and the house shifts and changes. We can just meditate on this for just a minute. This is the way we can understand where we fall. When situations in life, heaviness, and all of these things come against us, if we are built on the fundamental foundational things of the Spirit, it doesn't change a thing. But when we are not, it shifts and changes everything. Can I just be blunt? Okay. Can I be frank even though I'm Jared? If a situation happens in life and our response is to shift and change everything about who God is, we look at God differently now, we look at this differently, we are being quite foolish in the way we know we're being foolish if we've heard the right things but we're not doing them. Whereas when those things happen, it doesn't shift and change perspective of who God is, how we're supposed to live life, and I keep doing what I know to do. And actually in Scripture, this word is just called patience. Patience doesn't mean to like wait around. The word patience in Scripture, nine times out of ten, means to be constant, consistent in action. And you could tie that to the understanding of to be holy and dedicated, set apart for a specific use, which is what he says the house of God is supposed to be, which is your temple, which is you. Did I just tie out? Was that too much? (laughs) So when we look at this story, we're going to find ourselves on one side or the other. I was almost going to say it again, but I'm going to leave it alone. So Jesus says, this is what my servants are like. How do we know? Well, he said builders. Well, because we're asked to do the work that Christ no longer can physically do here because he's not physically here anymore. You are now the hands and feet of Christ. Okay? That's why we're called the church, the body of Christ. And he says, this is what happens. I, sh- I, I spread out my word. I speak it into the hearts of men. And those that hear it, because the word hear means what? The word hear means to perceive, which means you've seen it. You get God. You get it. <laughs> But he says there's a separate side to to the action of doing what it is. Now, before you guys want to jump to like, well, Ten Commandments, I haven't murdered anybody, I haven't done, and you just start going to that. This is also spiritual, which means it has to do with your spiritual thought process. How you think of things, how you view things, hear and do. He says this is what happens. Some hear and do, some hear and not do, and that is foolish. And he says, then when all this stuff happens, your entire life shifts and changes. 
Now there's another one. Can we, can we just keep going real quick? There's another one that is in Luke 12. I'm not going to read it. We'll read it later. But in Luke 12, 16, this is a story of a foolish, a rich foolish man. And this guy, and I'm going to paraphrase it just to help you understand this idea of wisdom and, and foolish. And he says, this guy's foolish, and here's his foolishness. Just, and it really ties directly to this idea because he says his foolishness is he looks at all that he has. He says, he's a rich man. I got lots of stuff. And he says, I look at all I have, and he says, well, what am I going to do? I don't have a big enough barn to fit all my stuff. I only got a two-car garage, and I need a three. I'm just, this is the equivalent, okay? And he says, I know what I'll do. I'll tear down the old barn, and I'll build a bigger one so I can have all my stuff. And what it actually says in Scripture, he says, I say to my soul. Why, doesn't, why is he talking to his soul? What is it? Because this is Jesus being brilliant again, saying this is about your spirit. And it says to his soul, soul. And the, I love it. It says, it says to his soul, and what that phrase there means, it says he thinks within himself and reasons. And he says, soul, this is good. And he says, now, take your fill, eat and drink and be merry. Enjoy life. And then it says, and he's a fool because he did not know that God would require his soul that evening. This is showing us built on natural things. Oh, and because if you want to keep going, we're not going to read it today. But, but the verse that comes right before the one about the servants that we're going to look at in a couple of weeks or so, it's the verse that happens right before. It says, seek first the kingdom of God, and all these things will, will be added unto you. And it's using the idea of a servant. A, and, and this idea of a servant, God, I, guys, I just got to quickly give it to you. He says, here's a wise servant. Here's a foolish one. A wise one stands watchful and sits there and constantly waits for the master to come back and keeps doing everything he's supposed to do whether the master's there or not there and it says and then when the master comes he actually takes charge of the whole place but it says the foolish one says to himself the master's gone and is waiting and he's tarrying so since he ain't coming back I'm gonna act like I'm the master now and the actual analogy that is given he's like he starts to beat up all of his fellow servants like he's just like whipping them and like just I get to do what I want to do when I want to do it because I'm the boss now y'all thinking oh I didn't beat anybody up If you didn't catch that, that was with your words, which is, okay, just clarify. And then, the, and then he says, and I'm going to do all that, and I'm going to take my fill. I'm going to partake of everything that is the master's because it's mine now. It says, then the master returns, and he says, now you have the same lump. And isn't it interesting? He's sitting here talking about servants and houses, and he doesn't use that phrase anymore, Jesus. And this, and this one right here, he says, you're, you've got the same portion of an unbeliever. He just ties that person and says, you're no different than the rest over here. Ouch. See, I told you guys when we started this, didn't I? I warned you. I said, we're really good about teaching a message about Jesus, but not the message Jesus taught. And the message Jesus taught was there is here, all sold out for me, and there is there. Unbelievers, I don't care. That is a whole, all of that separate. See, so your Wizard of Oz gospel doesn't float. Many click your heels three times, say, Jesus, you're done. And it doesn't float because the winds in the house came and all of a sudden Jesus ain't Jesus no more. Mm-hmm. Okay, so we're going to skip those and we're going to come back to those because those are happening in the middle of a conversation that gets into some stuff that we're going to have to talk about. I mean, it's pretty intense about what Jesus is talking about at that point. So what we're going to now do is look at this idea of wisdom and foolish, but we're going to look at it in Matthew 25. And we're going to start with verse 1. So just in case you're wondering where those other uh, servant scriptures go, if you have the ones that I just told you about, the wise and the foolish servant, if you are on the app and you scroll all the way down to the bottom, all the way, like through all the definitions that are there, you'll see a thing that says extra credit. <laughs> it's just a joke. Uh, you are being graded, though. And it has the two locations right there, okay? And that's where those two stories happen. But I wanted to give you guys a pretext behind it because we're going we're gonna to be shifting back and forth between this wisdom and foolish thing because it, it's literally the bulk of what Jesus talks about a lot. If y'all don't know this, by the way, too, majority of Jesus' messages, like 90-some-odd percent of them, are directed directly to believers only. 
Y'all didn't know that? Okay, let me tell you that again. Most of everything Jesus said, he was assuming belief in talking to people who were believers. He does talk to the believers about the unbelievers and what they're supposed to do, but he doesn't really talk to unbelievers all that much, especially in his parables. Which means everything in there is directed at you. So you don't get to pick and choose it and say, well, he's talking to unbeliever and that's not me. Nope, he's probably talking to you. Okay. So let's, let's look at this right here real quick. This idea of a wise and foolish. Okay, we looked at a builder. We kind of briefly talked about a servant. Let's just look at this one real quick. This one is called the wise and foolish virgins. Now let's real quick, we got a little bit to talk about before we read this story. Because if we're not careful, if we don't use proper hermeneutics, which is the study of Scripture to understand the history and where it comes from, we will get off into some weird ideas here. Because if you read this story, this is the premise, and we're going to read it verbatim here in a minute. But the premise of it is, is Jesus says, the kingdom of God is like this. He says, there's ten virgins that are all waiting for the groom to come, and they're all supposed to have these lamps, and but, but five of them didn't bring extra oil for their lamps and all this kind of stuff. And then when the groom comes, five of them get, you know, get, get to go in because they have the oil and the other ones don't, and, and then done. And you're like, huh, polygamy. Nothing to do with this story at all, like in the slightest. And matter of fact, in your Notes. If you do not have the notes, and you can hear me talking about these notes, I put like a six-paragraph little mini-essay of the understanding of how marriages worked at that time and the understanding behind it, because you've got to understand that to get what Jesus is saying, because we don't do marriages this way, okay? So now, and there's also a little thing about polygamy in there, just to help you understand that. Okay, so... When we look at this, we need to define some things. So I'm going to read this and define it as we go, okay? So instead of like just reading it and then coming back, we're just going to read it and define it as we go. Cool? Okay. Then shall the kingdom of God be likened unto ten virgins. we got to stop already. Okay, so what are we talking about? Everything we're about to hear has to do with the kingdom of God, the way God does things. Yes? Which we also know is in the here and in the now. Yes? Okay. If not agreed... Refer back to the other five hours of teaching. Okay. So this is what the kingdom of God is like. Everything we're about to read is like the kingdom of God. First thing we need to do is look at the number 10. Now, I've said this before, and it's in your notes as well if you want all the details behind it. Numbers have meaning, not power. Okay? There's a big difference between meaning something and having power for something. Okay? Meaning, not power. Okay? Because sometimes if we think power, we're like, there's a code. And if I use this number, and if I... No. It just has a meaning behind it, okay? Like the Hebrew people ascribed a meaning to a number to help communicate things, right? Because they wrote quite poetically and, I, and, and, and this idea. And so they're communicating concepts and ideas. Like they are what literary ninjas. Like they, they're just really good at this. And we're not. We're just like 10. <laughs> Wish I had 10 more dollars in my pocket. And that's where we leave it at. This number 10 here means unity. That's what 10 stands for. It stands for unity. But specifically the unity that comes from lots of parts coming together to make one whole. And as that one whole, it is like holy enough for the presence of God to dwell, which is commonly referred to as Shekinah glory, if you've ever heard that. Anybody thinking about something that is described in the Bible of having lots of parts but one whole and is supposed to be in unity and then the glory of God will descend upon it? It's called the church. So the reason they use ten virgins is because ten meant unity. And because this is talking about a wedding, which is about unity. And the ten are all the parts supposed to come together in one in unity like the church is supposed to be. So that's why they said 10. That's also why there's 10 commandments, and that's also why there's 10 times in Genesis. It says, and God said, and God said, and God said, and God said 10 times in there. They use this to help people understand there's unity in this, and when there's unity in this and all parts come together to make one whole, that's where the presence of God will dwell. Now, again, it doesn't say all that because it says 10. It's, that's an understanding that the reader would have read and said, 10, okay, so we're talking about unity here. I'm getting this. 
virgins. This is, um, <laughs> there's no, uh, well, yeah, they're good. Because of our day and age in which virginity and marriage are no longer synonymous with each other, we read this very differently. But in Old English, like in the 1600s, which is when this was written, as well as in the ancient times, to say virgin or to say a maiden, which would mean someone unmarried, is to say the same thing because they assumed that. Like, so in our language, we're like 10 virgins, and we're, again, we're getting off into this weird polygamy stuff happening, and like there's something about not having sex before. No, that is a modern day, and we're like, oh, you haven't had sex, so that makes you a virgin, but a maiden, you can be over here. And in, in ancient times, it was the same. So when they said a virgin, they were just saying you hadn't been married yet because they're assuming that's still the case. Now, again, this is spiritual. So let's think about that. That would mean purity, which would mean like dedicated to one, which would mean until you become married to the one, you stay dedicated to that one even before you see that one. Y'all didn't catch that? That's the spiritual understanding. I mean, even though the groom hasn't, you don't even know who you're supposed to marry yet, the idea of the purity, spiritually speaking, is I'm already dedicated to that even though it hadn't came yet. So I stay that way until it comes. Until, then when the groom comes, then I'm also, I just stay dedicated. It's almost like it's still this idea of, of, of holiness. I know we don't like that word. <laughs> I was about to say something. <laughs> I'm going to say it. We're really good at whoreness, but not holiness. We are just all over the place. Mm-hmm. Sorry, that went through my head and I wasn't going to say it. We're going to have to bleep things. Like, <laughs> Okay. So, Tim, did you just say you wrote that in your notes? So ten of these maidens, these dedicated things, these, these women, okay, which took their lamps and went forth to meet the bridegroom. Now, here's what the other thing we have to understand. This is actually a little bit of, of, of ceremony that they did, if someone's candle's rolling away. Uh, so the ceremony that would work out something like this. Some of y'all are like, I'm redoing my wedding if this is what I get to do. Think of a five- to seven-day party. Yes, I, it was a week-long event, but there's a lot of things that have to happen, okay? And basically, there's, there's and I put the, the kind of the bullet points in, in the notes, so I'm not going to dive into every little detail, but basically what would happen is once someone was betrothed, it was usually done by the parents, they would kind of agree uh, on what was going to happen because it was actually beneficial for both families and all this kind of stuff, and, and what would happen after they were betrothed together and say, yeah, this is what's going to happen, the groom, and I want you all to hear this, this is all spiritual, so start thinking about this, the groom is always Christ, okay? The groom would then... After that is done and they are betrothed, the groom would have one year to make ready a house in his father's house, actually, because they stayed together. Like the family just grew and grew and grew, and they just built another house on the property, and that's how they you know, had these huge fortunes is because they didn't all have to go do it their own way, and they stayed together as one No? Okay. And so the groom would then have to prepare a house for the bride, while the bride is waiting, and the bride would not know, because it could be sooner than a year, up to a year, could, you know, a little bit of variance, then the groom would come for the bride, but she wouldn't know when. So she had to stay ready. And the interesting thing is, is actually a lot of times in their culture, the bride would actually come and live at the same house, like with, with the father. So like, you're not quite married, you're not married yet, but you're staying with me. And there, was a, and there was an exchange just, oh, this is so cool if y'all think about this, otherwise what happened? It's spiritual. <laughs> because before that happened, there was an exchange where the father of the groom would pay the father of the bride because of the loss of the bride. And there was like a cost associated with, with getting the bride out to then be, no, come on. Mm-hmm. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> Mike's like, yeah, I'm going to leave that redneck out of this. <laughs> are, are, we, are we seeing this? 
So there's this exchange that happens first, then the bride is protected, and then the groom comes for the bride after he's prepared a place. In a couple of weeks, we will see where Jesus says, I go to prepare a place for you. Okay, so this happens, all right? While he's waiting, she's supposed to be in waiting, constantly ready and looking. And basically, there's a little ceremony thing that they would do kind of when it's time. And there would, be a, there would basically be an announcement that the groom's coming. It's time. We're now going to do this week-long party. <laughs> week-long. <laughs> and what would happen is the bride would get all of her you know, ladies-in-waiting, all, all, all of her maidens, and they would basically greet the groom. And again, I'm telling you, like, just bullet points here of the idea. The groom would come to, to claim the bride, right, from the father's house already. Mm-hmm. Uh, meaning we weren't over there in the other one, already in the, okay. So come to claim, and they would have these lamps to light the way, and it's like the starting of the festivals, okay? And then he would claim the bride, and they would go in, and they'd start the party, and there's all these different things that happen, and there's like a purification ritual, like almost like baptism, and all these other things that happen to signify this idea, and then they begin to party. And like, they didn't go on a honeymoon either, by the way. That may be the part that we don't like. They stayed there in the festivities. There's some kind of things that we would determine as odd that they would do on the first night. Um, but, you know, there's, there's, there's this understanding of this gigantic feast party wedding, like one where Jesus may need to make some more wine. I'm going to get a screen that says spoiler alert and then like has scripture verses, you know, like y'all, y'all we'll stay and watch credits on a movie for Easter eggs and I'm just like dropping them everywhere. <laughs> okay. So let's read now. So it's like these 10 versions, these 10 unified maidens and, and which took their lamps and they went to meet the bridegroom because he's coming. It's time. Five of them were wise. Five of them were wise. We already know something about wise ones. They hear and they do. And five were foolish, meaning they heard and didn't do. So they heard that the bride was coming, but they didn't do something, okay? But they that were foolish took their lamps and took no oil with them. But them that were wise took oil in their vessels with their lamps. Let's stop real quick. So what is this trying to tell us here? Well, first off, there's a little bit of debate on this, but not much. A little bit of debate says, well, no, they took their candle and they lit it, and then it burnt out. You know, so they had some oil in it. And then the other idea is they just took a lamp and they had no oil in it. And then we're going to basically, they forgot the oil. And it seems to give us the idea that they had no oil at all. So they have a lamp that is not lit because they're going to make ready, but they're not going to light their lamp until the bride comes. That seems to be more what it's saying. But the wise ones took oil in a vessel. Now, so in the natural... Who has those mosquito repellent thingies, right? What do you got to do? You got to put the, you know, I don't know, paraffin wax stuff, whatever it is, in there and light it, right? And when it's dead, the, the wick doesn't burn. So imagine you've taken it, but you have nothing inside of it, but someone else got the giant jug of it, okay? Maybe not giant jug, but they got a jug of it, okay? Separately in a vessel. So this is in the natural. Now what does this mean spiritually? Spiritually speaking, one has a lamp. The lamp is representative of life. A light, a life that is not lit. <laughs> Hashtag ardent lit. Okay, so <laughs> that is not lit and has no fuel to do so, which it makes it worthless. One has that life and that, that candle and has the method to do so. So the lamp is the life, right? Is the light, is the life. What is oil? Oil is always one thing. In all of New Testament and Old Testament, when it is referring to spiritual matters, it is only ever one thing. And we commonly say it represents anointing. But we can't say that anymore because all of us Pentecostals have kind of messed that idea up a little bit. We got it halfway there. We missed the important half. Because a lot of times when I say anointing, if anybody was raised in any kind of, of, of charismatic type thing, it, we kind of... Picture it as this special thing that that person has that that person doesn't have, and they have a little bit more of it. So if I get closer to that person, then all of a sudden it gets on me. And that's not how it works. 
Scripture tells us all are anointed. Now, the word anointing comes, and I'm not going to go into super detail about this. It comes from actually herding sheep, and they would gather their sheep together, and they would put oil on their ears and their eyes to keep the pest away, in which those things didn't come again. When, the, when those things tried to attach, they couldn't, and they just they fell off, but the sheep didn't die. I'm kind of thinking about like this idea of a builder in which like when the things came against, it just didn't change anything. Mm-hmm, seeing that. Okay, so I'm doing that too much. <laughs> I forget. So when we see oil, it's always representative of this anointing, this, this thing in which God bestows on someone that does something. We commonly say it's like it removes burdens and it destroys things that bind people. It's this power. And really the best way to understand it, it is the manifested presence of God on someone. So there are some believers, because <laughs> mind you, they're virgin, they're part of the church, it says. And some are wise and some are foolish. Some hear and do, some do not hear and do. And some of them take that lamp and that light, and they're just walking around in the darkness like blind leading the blind or something like here. And, and they're saying, we're going to be ready for the bridegroom, but they ain't ready. They're not prepared. They're not ready. And then there's another group of them that has in their vessel which is what your body is referred to, you're carrying the oil, waiting and ready. Now, verse 5, while the bridegroom tarried, which means delayed, the, the groom has not come yet, he's delayed, now they all slept and slumbered, all of them. The wise and the foolish ones slept and slumbered. So let me help you out a little bit, like right here with this, okay? To, to slumber and to sleep does literally mean like to fall asleep and become negligent with things. Showing that the issue that Jesus is not pointing out is that, that you, you kind of fall asleep a little bit. Everybody's going to do that. So he's kind of pointing out this idea. They all fell asleep. They all took rest. They all had these, these situations. But even in that, some, some of them stayed prepared. And at midnight, there was a cry made. Behold, the groom comes. Go out to meet him. Okay, the word midnight means Mesos, or in the middle of. So in the middle of the night, in the middle of the darkness, in the middle of the chaos, in the middle of this, and this word cry actually carries an idea meaning of, of, of violence, like cry. Behold, the bridegroom comes. Go out to meet him. Then all those virgins, so all of the betrothed, the church, arose. And they trimmed their lamps. And trimmed their lamps literally means to prepare the lamp. Like they're getting ready to light it. Okay? Like it's time. It's coming. And the foolish one said unto the wise, Give us your oil, for our lamps are gone out, is how we would say that in English. But a better way to understand that was just have not been lit or they have, they're extinguished. Okay? Verse 9. But the wise answered, saying... Nay, nay. He said, not so, lest there not be enough for us and for you. But rather go to them that sell and buy it for yourselves. Pause. I actually struggled with this for a minute. Because I wasn't looking at it as believers like the first time I read through and the couple times I read through and I kept reading through them as defining words. And I'm still just kind of like, yeah. And then it dawned on me after reading the other verses again. I was like, oh, all this is talking about believers. Because see, in my mind a little bit, who would say this? The wise answered and said, no, I'm not going to give you any money. Well, that's stingy. That's not giving. That is not the love of God. What about the 99 for the one and all that? And... But see, we have to understand what's happening here. If the oil represents the presence and the Spirit of God, which you can mindly only get from Him, and this is the church we're talking about here, the foolish went to the wise and said, Hey, give us some of what you got. But the wise actually said, I can't give you something. You got to get it legitimately. You got to go like Sell what you got and go obtain it for yourself. You can't live off of mine. It's got to cost you. Amen. 
There's another story Jesus gives us that we've mentioned a couple times where he says, the kingdom of God is like a man who finds a treasure and puts it in a field, sells all he has to obtain the field where the treasure is. So this is really not about like being stingy. This is about understanding legitimacy behind the spirit that you claim to have and saying that these people have acquired it, which means those other five virgins had priorly sold everything they had to obtain the groom. The other ones had not. But they knew the groom was coming and they knew who the groom was. Yes? It didn't, right? Okay. And by the way, there's a reason the bride is not mentioned in here because you're like, well, these are the virgins of the bride. Where's the bride? All of them together in unity make the church, which the church is called the bride. I see that. Okay. So they say, no, you've got to go obtain it for yourself. You can't, you can't get it from me because I already sold everything I have. I have nothing to give. That's why it says there won't be enough. Because I've obtained it, but you've got to get it legitimately and go and, and go to those who sell and buy it from them and acquire it for yourself, not through someone else. Okay, I think we got that part. It says, and why they, while they went to buy, the groom came. And they that were ready went in with him into the marriage, and the door was shut. So if we can get this picture now, the other ones say, okay, I'm going to go try to buy it. I'm going to go try to figure this thing out. And they leave. And they leave. <laughs> Here's how I saw it. You can think I'm, I'm, uh, I'm crazy, and that's fine. They were more concerned with the ceremony to have the thing than the groom himself. And they could have just stayed there and waited for the groom to come. See, I'll catch it. They already screwed up once. Okay, can we just say it this way? They didn't buy and sell all they had. But they could still, at that moment, had their eyes more on the groom. And the fact that I was more concerned with getting into the marriage than doing the ceremony itself. But they didn't. They said, no, all right, we're going to go. We're going to go do the ceremonial thing. We're going to go buy and, and, and sell this stuff. And the groom came. They would win. And it said, enter into, uh, literally means to come together in unity. In the marriage, the feast that we've talked about lots of times already. And we'll talk about a whole lot more. Jesus gives us another crazy one that's like really similar to this. In which he says, there's a man who threw a great feast and everyone had an excuse as to why they couldn't come. We're going to read this one in detail because it's a good one. Jesus said, this guy says, I got to do laundry. And this guy says, well, not really. He says, I got to go sell a goat or something like that. And then he's like, and this guy says, I got to do this. And this guy says, I got to do that. They all got something to keep them busy to do. And they missed out on the feast. And it says, and then the marriage happened, the other man, and it says the door was shut. And the word door there is a, is a, is a very interesting word. It does mean a door, like, like an opening or, or an entranceway. But it means, <laughs> this is so cool, the metaphorical meaning of this door is more like a gate in a pasture in which a shepherd lets sheep in and out. And we're going to see another thing where Jesus says, I'm the shepherd, and there's sheep and goats in my herd, and I need to get rid of the goats. So I'm going to open and shut the gate. It's almost like Jesus just said the same thing over and over and over in different ways just to get different people to understand it. It was shut. Afterward also came those other virgins, so the not wise ones, the ones that heard but didn't do, and then that decided, all right, now, now it's a little late. We're going to go get this. And they said, Lord, Lord, open to us. Doesn't that sound like the thing we just read? Lord, Lord, have we not? But he answered, this groom answered and said, Verily I say unto you, I don't know you. Watch therefore, for you neither know the day or the hour when the Son of Man comes. So just in case we miss this whole analogy and metaphor, Jesus was like, watch because Son of Man, I'm, I'm the groom. So watch. And you're the other people. So he clears it up right there at the end for us. But what does he say? I never knew you. 
I never knew you is in reference to, <laughs> to a relationship. But moreover, it's the idea of knowing to understand. But a better phrasing for this is we haven't consummated this. See, in the biblical way to, to understand this idea of consummating means to be dedicated and now it's like we're bonded together in, in unity. They would use this phrase and such and such knew such and such, which, which meant they were now consummated together. And since this is the beginning of the marriage, this is the beginning of the union. And he says, you, you weren't in unity with me. I don't know you. We weren't in relationship. We never, we never communed together. You could say a lot about me, sure. You knew a lot about when I was, that I was coming. You just didn't think it also wise to do anything about it. This idea of wise and foolish is speaking to the church. And I told you, I warned you <laughs> when we started, didn't I, that it gets a little hard um, to continue because we tend to want, we tend to mistake the idea that because Christ paid the price, that there is nothing that we have to pay. But it's two different types of payment, you see. The price that he paid was the price that you couldn't pay. It's, it's the, 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 you, you wouldn't be able to do it even if you wanted to. But the side that you're supposed to fulfill of the covenant with him, which is what a marriage is called, is the part that you can. See, we make this misunderstanding just like in the wedding, that, that whole ceremony I was telling you about. The price that was paid was to get you out. Now remember all the other teachings. What are you out of? This world system. This orderly arrangement that exists within man, which is you first, God last. This messed up order. I'm just going to go ahead and go for it and just mess up some, like just, I'm just going to say it because, you know, why not? See, the bride was in the father's house, her father's house. And in Scripture, it tells us the father of this world. Ephesians talks about it. Corinthians talks about it. I mean, everywhere talks about it. And the price that Christ paid was to redeem out to make you what? No longer Scripture says it this way in the Old Testament, a child of the darkness or a child of Satan. Now you're a child of light, a child of... It uses all these different ideas. and says, that's the system you were under because that's... Oh, it's almost like that's what you are born into. <laughs> but the price he paid was to say, you're now redeemed out of that one. And now... Oh, that's a little closer. And now you're made righteous, right standing. Now you're made my bride. But the price you pay to be my bride is to stay dedicated to me. I already made the way for you to do this thing. So there's nothing you can do for that salvation. But to walk into my kingdom, that's all your choice. Or you can choose to go back to daddy's house. And so we mistake in the church because we just teach a lot about Jesus and we're just, we're just, we're just Jesus, 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 isn't it great? Jesus, 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 while doing nothing he told us to do. Which is why the world looks at all of us and says, they're a bunch of fools. You know, the interesting thing is the world, and I, when I say the world, 
I mean, the thought process and the system that exists, not the people. The people in the world are not our enemies. They're our brothers and sisters that have also been redeemed. They just haven't made it to the ceremony. And so our job right now before the bridegroom is to say, come on, let's go. It's time. It's time. And get that oil, by the way. Oh, it's almost like there's another scripture that says something about they have a form of godliness, but denying the power thereof. Power comes from the spirit of God that is dwelling within us. No. Okay. But see, the issue is when we talk about just, 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 just the number one thing the world would say, the thought process of the world would say, here's the hypocrisy of the church. Here's what their own Bible says, their own words say, their own God says, and I don't see a lick of it. And we can very quickly say, well, we're a work in progress too. Yeah. No spirit, Sherlock. <laughs> of course we are. But we have taken that. Mm. My toes are hurting. We have taken that and created it as an excuse to not do the words. And we've taken it as a way to say, well, I'm trying to. Don't judge me. I won't judge you. We've misunderstood this idea. We've completely twisted what God requires of us to try to make it palatable for us. Instead of saying, no, this is going to cost me something. If I want to enter into that, it's going to cost me something. Now, again, don't get it twisted. I'm not saying you got to earn that salvation. No, 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 no. Faith works together. <laughs> and when faith and works work together, faith works. 